Go ahead and be seated. If you would, grab your Bibles and open them up to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Hope is a precious commodity in human life. What a contrast of emotions there is that lie between the words hopeless and hopeful. The Bible uses both of those terms to describe our spiritual condition. Hopeless uses is a term that's used to describe the terminal condition of those that are separated from God. In fact, Paul expresses it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 12, and he says, Remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the people of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. They had no hope and they were without God because they were separated from Christ. And if a person persists in rejecting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, then they are left to experience this hopelessness throughout all of eternity. Now, hopeful on the other hand, it depicts a repentant sinner who, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse number 27, this person experiences the reality of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Also in Colossians chapter 1, you'll, you'll read about how the hope of the gospel assures us of forgiveness and everlasting life. Now this hope that we have in Christ gives us confidence of God's presence in our lives today, as well as our being in God's presence throughout eternity. Therefore, while the unbeliever is condemned to spend eternity hopelessly condemned to the place of torment, those that put their faith and trust in Jesus will be blessed to spend eternity knowing a fulfilled hope that they are forever in the glorious presence of our Lord. In his first epistle, Peter has a lot to say about hope. The hope that can belong to us if we'll receive the greatest gift given unto man. That's Jesus Christ, our Lord. First Peter chapter 1, I'll pick up in verse number 3. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We'll stop there today. My hope and my desire is today we'll get through verses 3, 4, and 5. Over the next few weeks, we'll end up covering all from verses 3 all the way through uh, to verse number 12. Here, the contemplation of God's grace calls Peter to praise God. He praised God, the author of salvation and the source of our hope. He uses the words, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. These words are the identical words that Paul also uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 3, Paul writes and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now, this term blessed that's being used here in Peter's writing, some of your translations might render it as all praise be unto God or blessed. This, this is different from the term blessed that we find in Matthew chapter 5 in speaking about the Beatitudes. There are two different Greek words that are being used. And we'll talk about the one that's being used in our text this morning. The word blessed here in, in this text comes from the Greek word elogatos. Elogatos. Uh, this, this word is used exclusively of God in the New Testament. Elogatos means to speak highly of or to speak well of. Elogatos is from the word that we get our word eulogy from. And so he says, to speak well of, or all praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he has this phrase who says, who according to his great mercy, and that's referring to God's unmerited favor towards sinners and their hopeless condition. He says, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. And that should elicit an amen or a hallelujah. That, that phrase, born again, apart from Jesus using it in John chapter 3, this is the only place that you'll find it in, in the New Testament. And it's found two times outside of John chapter 3. And both of them are contained in this chapter. We see it in verse number 3. And you'll see it later on in verse number 23. There it says, For you have been born again. Not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. Now Peter may very well be recalling Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus there in John chapter 3. And so this new birth results in a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter is without question the apostle of hope. May you know that hope in the New Testament always relates to a future good. The hope that he had in mind is the eager, confident expectation of life to come in eternity. So having this great expectation or having this living hope means that the believer's hope is sure. Their hope is certain. Their hope is the real thing. Unlike the, the deceptive, empty, false hope that the world has to offer, our hope comes from a living, resurrected Savior. And so the miraculous hope that we have in Christ all began when God, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, when, when God chose us to belong to Him. I need you to hang with me this morning. I'm going to cover some texts. I'm going to cover some theological concepts this morning that are difficult for us to wrestle through. But please, just hear me out and let me show you what the Word of God has to say about this. Let's begin in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us 
in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, so this, this choosing takes place in the deep counsels of eternity past. And if we knew nothing about this choosing until it was revealed to us in the Word of God. This choosing was not based upon anything that we had done because we were not even alive when the choosing occurred. This choosing is not based on anything that God saw that we might do or, or saw what we might become. No, God's choosing was all based completely upon His grace and His love. And and let's be honest, we may not ever fully understand the the great significance of Ephesians chapter 1 in our lifetime. After all, Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, 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 while we might not be able to fully explain it or completely understand it, we most certainly can still rejoice in it. I mean, consider Romans chapter 8, verse number 29 for a moment. There it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, the most common error when it comes to uh, the, the, the concept of, of predestination usually arises from a misunderstanding or a misreading of this particular text. Some look at this text and they think that God's predestination is based upon His foreknowledge. This has been misunderstood to mean that God looked down the corridors of history and He foresaw what you or I would do. And based upon that information, He stuck that into His plan. But I want you to know that Romans 8.29 does not say that God foreknew certain decisions on our part and therefore took that into consideration. It, it, It does not say that God foresees our faith And on the basis of that, he predestined us. No, Romans 8, 29 says, For God foreknew certain people. Look at the word foreknew. In the Bible, to foreknow means to select in advance. To choose beforehand. It means to set one's love upon a person or a people in in, in a particular personal way. It is used this way in Amos chapter 3, verse number 2, when the Lord was speaking to the nation of Israel. And he says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. God set his electing love on the nation of Israel on the basis of his love and his covenant promise. Deuteronomy chapter 7 makes it clear. It says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any 
of the peoples, for you are the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and He kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Other verses in, in, in the Bible, there are a lot. I'll give you a few that use no in this specific way uh, can be found in places like Psalm chapter 1, verse number 6. It says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. A very familiar text is found in Matthew chapter 7. And, and there it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Never chose you in advance. I never selected you. I never chose you to, to be the recipient of my personal love. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 says this, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. I want you to understand that the plan of salvation includes more than just God's electing love. It also includes the work of the Holy Spirit to convict the sinner and to bring them to faith. I think perhaps the best commentary that fully explains this in one concise way is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 13 and 14. There it says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Then it says, Through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth, it was for this He called you through our gospel that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Here's the glorious truth when it comes to salvation. When it comes to salvation, we need to understand that we have been chosen by the Father, purchased by the Son, and then set apart by the Holy Spirit. And it takes all three of them if there is to be a true salvation experience into a life of an individual. Let me break it down on a personal way. For me, as far as God the Father is concerned, I was saved when He chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. But that choosing wasn't enough in and of itself to complete my salvation. As far as the Son is concerned, I was saved the moment that He gave Himself up as a living sacrifice. He took on the sin of the world and it was nailed to the cross. Uh, so as far as the Son is concerned, at the cross when He died for me, but, but that in and of itself still isn't enough to complete that salvation. As far as the Holy Spirit is concerned, I'll never forget it. I was saved on that Sunday morning in the fall of 1987. Richardson, Texas, Canyon Creek Baptist Church. Dr. Terry Smith preaching on the eternity of your soul. It was then and there that it all came together. But it took all three persons of the Godhead to bring me to salvation. 
if we try to separate these ministries, then we will either deny sovereign election or we will neglect human responsibility. And I'm telling you that it's not an either or scenario. It is a both and scenario. It takes both of them. Both of them are essential for salvation. So you need to hear there's both divine sovereignty and human responsibility are essential for salvation. The same God that ordains the end, salvation, He's the same God that ordains the means to the end, and that is the preaching, the proclamation, the teaching of His Word. Peter does not deny man's part in God's plan to save sinners. In fact, in verse number 23, he emphasizes the fact that the gospel was preached to the people, they heard it, and they believed. Back to verse uh, number 4. Verse number 4 in 1 Peter chapter 1 describes the Christian's hope. It says, To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Peter calls this hope an inheritance. As children of the King, we share an inheritance in glory. And this isn't the only place that we find this type of language. Other places in Scripture, Romans chapter 8, it says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, says, Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with Him, with the Holy Spirit as promised, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. How wonderful it is to know that we are included in the last will and testament of Jesus Christ our Lord. We share the glory with Him. Listen to to Jesus' prayer to His Father that's found in John chapter 17. John chapter 17 verse 22 says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me. That they may be perfected, sorry, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father. Although the world has not known yet, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them 
and will make it known, so that the love which you love me may be in them and I in them. What a beautiful prayer our Lord prays for those that would come to, to trust and, and submit unto him. And we go back to our text in First Peter chapter 1, and we see in verse number 4, we see this description of this inheritance that's given to those that believe in Jesus. It's totally unlike any earthly inheritance that one might receive. For one thing, the text says that it is imperishable, which means nothing can ruin it. Not only is it imperishable, it's undefiled which means it cannot be stained, nor can it be cheapened in any way. So it's imperishable, it's undefiled, and then it's unfading. It's beyond the reach of of change or decay, meaning that it will never grow old. It will never wear out. It won't disappoint us in any way. Peter uses a triple word picture to describe our inheritance. It's an inheritance. It's one that will never perish, never spoil, never fade away. These three verbal adjectives indicate that our inheritance is untouched by death, it's unstained by evil, and it's unimpaired by time. Another way to say that is this inheritance is death-proof, it's sin-proof, and it is time-proof. And Peter reveals that this inheritance is called salvation. Verse 5, he says, Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then you go down to verse number 9. It says, Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And according to, to Ephesians 2, the believer is already saved through faith in Jesus Christ. But the completion of that salvation awaits our Lord's return. And Paul calls this completion or the awaiting, he calls this the blessed hope. I'll show you. In Titus chapter 2, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly, in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So so here's the thing. Not only is our inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and never-ending, it is also kept in heaven for us. Back to verse 4. This is a key understanding for us to see. Having uh, obtained an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, then it says, reserved in heaven for you. That word reserve means to, to keep or to guard. The verb tense emphasizes the fact that the inheritance already exists and is being guarded to this day. God himself has reserved this inheritance in heaven for believers. And it continues to be there, still protected, still reserved 
for us even right now, which means the difficulties that we experience in this world cannot undermine the certainty of our coming inheritance. And to fully appreciate that, we need to understand that Peter was writing to a people who were under severe persecution. They were suffering greatly. Peter refers to their suffering no less than 15 different times in his letter. In fact, he uses no less than eight different Greek words to describe their suffering. So so think about how encouraging this message had to be for them to hear and to know that the difficulties that they were experiencing in their present circumstance could not undermine the certainty of their coming inheritance. And what a thrilling thing it is to know that, that we've been born for glory. And when we're born again, this new birth in Jesus Christ, then we exchange the passing glory of man for the eternal glory of God. So this inheritance is being reserved for us. And I love this text in verse number 5. We see that as children of God, we're being protected by God's power. Verse 5 says, Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That word protected is a military term. It's often used to refer to soldiers who offer protection within a city. The present tense emphasizes the continual nature of this protection. Let me be clear. This does not suggest that believers are protected from pain, from difficulty, or from suffering in this lifetime. But it does mean that God himself guards, watches over our salvation, our inheritance, protecting it. What greater hope could be given to those that were in the midst of persecution than the knowledge that God's love is a protecting love, it's a protecting power for their souls, and it preserves them for an inheritance of salvation that will be completely revealed and fully understood when Jesus Christ returns. Let me be extremely clear. Salvation is not kept by our own power. It is kept by the power of God. Salvation is not kept by our own strength. Salvation is kept by God's faithfulness. So how long will He guard us? How long will He protect us? Until Jesus Christ returns. And then and there we will share in the full revelation of this great salvation. Are you ready for this? According to Romans chapter 8, verse number 30, those that believe in Him, those that are truly born of God, the Christ followers, if that's you, then according to Romans chapter 8, verse number 30, you have already been glorified. The text says, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. All that awaits is the public revelation of His glory. Romans 8 also says in verses 18 through 21, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For the ancient longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into a freedom of the glory of the children of God. And how encouraging it is to know that we have been guarded and are being protected for glory. If any believer were lost, if that were a possibility, then it would rob God of his glory. So salvation is kept not by what we do or who we are. Salvation is kept, protected, it's guarded because of God and who he is. So God is so certain that we'll be in heaven that we've already been given his glory as the assurance of that reality. I mean, back to John chapter 17. I'll end with this one. We already read it, but John chapter 17, again, verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The hope we have in Christ is the confidence concerning God's presence in our lives today as well as the comfort that we have of knowing that we will be in his presence for all eternity. Hopeless and hopeful. The two terms the Word of God uses to describe our spiritual condition. The question for you today is which one are you? Are you hopeful because you've bended the knee of your pride and you've submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Or are you currently walking in a state of hopelessness because you've yet to fully give your heart and life to the Lord? Which one will it be? Your condition is determined by how you respond to the greatest gift ever given to mankind. What will you do with Jesus Christ? Will you confess Him as Lord? Commit your lives to live for His glory. To experience the hope of Christ in us. Or will you continue to walk in a state of hopelessness? Trying to do it your own way. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this day and for Your Word. God, I pray that each and every individual here would receive the hope of Christ. God, I recognize that not everyone that's in this place that's listening online or that's watching through YouTube or wherever, I know that not everyone that's here that's watching that's listening has the hope of Christ. Father, I pray that if it be Your will, your spirit would move among us, among each and every person, Father. For those that are apart from you, that your spirit would bring unto them the salvation that's needed for them to experience the hope of Christ. 
for your children, Father. I pray that your Spirit would move among all of us, myself included, Father. Make known unto me and to all of us the things that we are currently doing that displease you. Make known unto us the things that we need to be doing that we're not. Make known unto us how we're to live each and every day to its fullest, that you might be glorified and that you might be praised in all that we do and all that we say. Father, thank you for the blessing of your word. God, thank you for the blessing of the establishment of the church. And in particular, this particular gathering of the saints. It is with great joy to be here. Father, there is a lot of work that must be done. We are surrounded by way too many people who are currently living in hopelessness. So Father, may each and every one of us earnestly desire to present the gift of hope this Christmas. In Christ's name I pray.